It is our pleasure to welcome Dr. Richard Shields to an interview with historians Dana Lott and Britta Smith. Dr. Shields is the Gary Soderberg Endowed Professor, Chair, and Executive Officer in the Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences Department within the Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. He began his education by earning a Bachelor of Science in Biology at Catawba College in 1976. This was followed by a certificate in physical therapy at the Mayo Clinic School of Health-Related Sciences in 1981. He then earned both a master's in 1985 and a PhD in 1992 in exercise physiology at the University of Iowa. Dr. Shields has had a prolific career in research with 133 publications in peer-reviewed journals. He has authored many scientific, scientific abstracts and has been a mentor to 19 PhD graduates and a host of doctoral students. Dr. Shields has been the recipient of multiple awards, including the Foundation for Physical Therapy Award for Service, the APTA Malley Award for Research Excellence, and the Mary McMillan Lecturer Award. He is also a recipient of the Catherine Worthingham Fellow Award of the American Physical Therapy Association. In 2021, Dr. Shields was the Ann Shumway Cook Lecturer on translation of research to clinical practice, recognition for his lifelong study, improving the understanding and quality of life for those with spinal cord injury. Welcome, Dr. Shields. Thank you. I look forward to the interview. Great. So why did you become a PT? Oh boy, that is a great question. Um, you know, unlike what happens today where students often spend hours and hours observing and, and so forth, you know, I was really interested in either going into medicine, going into microbiology, or um, obviously I had, I had been active in a lot of athletics and so forth, and I had my share of injuries. But it was honestly, it was a event that happened when I was about 13 years old, when um, we were, you know, I was from the state of New Jersey, and we were diving out of a tree into a creek. And, um, and it was at night. And a, a young friend of mine went first, and he hit a piece of wood. Uh, floating down that, that he didn't see. And, and I got to observe firsthand um, someone sustain a spinal cord injury. And, you know, that didn't, I, I wouldn't say that at that point I said, oh, I'm going to be a PT. But I did, it stayed with me forever. And so, you know, when I finished my bachelor's work, I looked at curriculums and Mayo Clinic, I really liked their curriculum. So that guided me there. So I went to PT school and I never set foot in a PT clinic before. And that's very unlike today where, where people get, a, you know, incredible observation hours. So that's really how it happened. I just fell in love with the, the, the physiology of the human body and its application to people with pathology. 
So that started my journey. So a lot of your early work was in the properties of muscle fatigue. So what do you mean by that? Because I don't think in a spinal cord of fatigue being an issue, rather just activation at all. Yeah. So it's a good question. You know, what, what happened was um, I was in, engrossed with the, the sciences. And so reading papers in the area of what happens to muscle in animal models when they cut their spinal cord became very interesting to me because when you cut the spinal cord, a misnomer is that the, the muscle does not have any nerves to it. But the truth of the matter is when you cut the spinal cord below the level of that injury, all the peripheral nerves are attached to the muscle. And so I read a paper and it was in the 1980, it was published in nature and it was by a very prolific scientist, even today, Reggie Edgerton. And he had published that you, when they cut the spinal cord of a cat and they waited at 12 months, they looked at the muscle and it didn't lose its uh, fatigue properties. In other words, his, his point was that, you know, skeletal muscle that you're born with that has a certain nerve to it, as long as it has that peripheral nerve, it will maintain its phenotype, even if you reduce activity by cutting the spinal cord. That was the very powerful paper that was published in Nature. And when I read that, I everything I knew about training and skeletal muscle, it just didn't make good sense to me. And so, but, you know, I was, I said, well, if that's true, then if I take an individual who's had a spinal cord injury for a year and I repetitively stimulate the soleus muscle, which is an oxidative muscle, then it should not fatigue. And I said, that would be just a remarkable thing to see. And, um, you know, when I did it, it fatigued it like one fast motor unit. I mean, it just collapsed and it was like, oh my gosh, this is not what was being portrayed in the animal model. And so, you know, when I talk about fatigue, you know, and what we know today, I mean, if we transition all the way to today, a muscle that maintains oxidative abilities is not resistant to insulin. It's, it's a healthy organ. And we don't look at muscle, and I didn't look at muscle back then as, oh, well, if you're not going to walk, you don't need it. Or it's just the way, it's just a, a force generator. It's actually a very powerful organ that 75% of all uh, carbohydrate that you eat is metabolized at the level of the skeletal muscle. So when I would be moving those limbs of an individual who's paralyzed, I kept thinking, he's 18, these organs are disappearing, and yet he's going to eat, he's got to have a healthy metabolism, and if they do lose that ability to sustain force or becomes highly fatigable, then in essence, you've lost the function of that organ. One of the major functions is to churn uh, 
energy, if you will, from food substrate. So that's why fatigue was much more meaningful because it was an index, and it is today, it's a wonderful biomarker for health. I mean, if you look at elderly, um, the ability uh, for them to sustain activity repetitively is a wonderful biomarker for the prevention of chronic disease. So back then I had that notion that skeletal muscle is much more than just a force generator. When somebody's paralyzed in the 80s, it was more like, well, we're glad their muscles atrophying because it makes it easier to transfer. Hmm. And while that might be true, there's some other uh, physiological things that by losing that muscle tissue puts them at high risk for secondary complications. And they're 18 years old and they live a long life, but they suffer from a lot of other secondary events. So for, so my, I'm, I'm in the acute care setting and I know that, um, a lot of this is, we're talking kind of chronic spinal cord injury. How could this translate into clinical practice in the acute setting? Yeah. So um, if you, if you um, think about it, what we did is, you know, you're right. We studied individuals who were chronically paralyzed and showed that their muscle became fatigued. But our control group in our very first work that was published in Journal of Neurophysiology, uh, our control group was individuals who had only been paralyzed for two weeks or less. And that control group showed that they didn't fatigue. In other words, their muscle was still the way it was before their injury. And then what we did is I did a 12-year trial where we mapped out across time when do these changes occur? And so the loss of that fatigue, that, that fatigability at about six months after the injury is about 50% there. At 12 months, it's there. So, you know, they don't have to be chronic very long. You know, so we think of chronic and we think of five years, 10 years, but the window of opportunity, I always said, you know, I don't know if we should do this, but if we wanted to do something, we need to do it between the time of the injury and within 12 months, because that's when all the loss of endurance is happening. And what that really means is you're losing mitochondria of the cell. So as you lose mitochondria, we now know today that that's a very powerful way to produce things that are healthy in the endocrine system and so forth. So how do, how could that translate? Well, we have people that, um, you know, if you think about it in ICU, they're getting people up, you know, right away. The Hopkins work has shown that, mm -hmm. you know, if you mobilize people early or induce activity, they actually have a better outcome in the acute phase. Um, so what we need to think about is if, if, these individuals are consuming meals or they're obviously getting some form of energy when they're in the acute phase, but they have a pretty much a flaccid paralysis early on. Can we assist their metabolism by turning on that muscle that's paralyzed 
whereas we would typically only focus primarily on passively ranging those limbs, but not activating the muscles. So one clinical implication, and uh, we just published this actually in January in PTJ, um, that you know we know the pathways that we can turn on by driving a muscle. And I think a real injustice was that we started using terms like functional electrical stimulation, you know, because it gave the idea that, oh, well, if it's not functional, then it's not needed or useful. And I always use that as an example because what we lost is when you drive a muscle electrically, you're stimulating the nerve, not the muscle. And so the muscle sees an impulse just like it was coming from our own brain. So everything after that muscle gets turned on is identical to what would happen if I was volitionally activating that muscle. So, you know, what, what we've lost sight of is, oh, well, I mean, everybody said, well, we would use e-stim purely for walking or function or something like that, when the reality is, it's it's like inducing activity and um so that's where i really see where it, it had merit first of all to discover that this conversion occurs because the animal work didn't say that the animal work said it never loses its ability to fatigue and i thought gosh what a gold mine we could drive that muscle and it could sustain activity forever and then when I realized, oh my gosh, this is not what's happening in humans, their muscle is becoming fast, glycolytic, losing all their mitochondria and becoming insulin resistant. And then that of course explains why hyperinsulinemia and diabetes is so rampant in people with spinal cord injury. So those are some of the early applications. You know, maybe we need to think about getting people on a course to preserve health of all tissues, even those tissues that have, they're not able to volitionally activate. Does it matter which muscles you activate? I mean, postural um, muscles or slow, slow twitch or fast twitch or? Yeah, so good question. You know, by the time one year goes, all muscles look identical in people with spinal cord injury. So they regress to a mean, which means they all become fast. So any of your slowest muscles, like the soleus muscle, which is a postural muscle, that becomes 100% fast glycolytic. So they no longer have variation in their skeletal muscles. So, but your question is really good because the more muscle you can drive, the greater the effect could be on metabolism or taking up glucose after a meal. We always tell um, those of us who can move, well, if, you know, after you eat a meal, don't lay down, you know, go for a walk, do something after a meal. And that makes perfect sense because you need less insulin because if your muscles working, it draws in the glucose in the absence of insulin. So you reduce your need for insulin. Well, individuals with spinal cord injury, what a wonderful opportunity, if nothing else, to knock down their insulin peak 
after they eat a meal by just activating their musculature in, in a pretty straightforward, simplified way without high-tech equipment, just turning on the muscle, just like somebody fidgeting would do, you know, where you're, you're in some level of constant movement. Um, so yeah, it, but, but the more muscle that one would drive, the better. Because again, that would be like taking a walk. And so rather than just activating the calf muscle or the, you know, the quadriceps, hamstrings, but it doesn't have to be in a way that generates a high force. It can be done in a way that drives it, um, you know, at a low force level, um, but recruits most of the muscle. And you can do that by stimulating it at a very low frequency. So would you recommend that someone have electrodes on the quads or the soleus uh, turn on after every meal for a certain amount of time? Yeah, so um, I've got a paper that is um, coming out very soon on that exact thing where we we measured their insulin spike and it's it's about you know 40% reduced if they activate the muscle starting 15 minutes after eating a meal or having a glucose drink or something like that for many of them because of their bowel programs they don't their eating habit often they don't eat a lot but they will take a mountain dew and drink it and not a diet Mountain Dew. And that's when their insulin goes up sky high. It just goes to some incredible levels. So um, while I'm not prepared to say today that the randomized controlled trial has been completed to actually then make it um, uh, a supported endeavor, I think the, the studies are accumulating that are pointing in the direction that, yeah, that that might not be a, a bad approach to try to improve overall health over a lifetime. This concludes the abbreviated version of the interview with Dr. Shields. Listen to the full version to hear Dr. Shields discuss neurogenic osteoporosis, as well as the role of epigenetics on the future of physical therapy practice. Thank you for listening.